Let's go ahead and let's go ahead and get started then. Um, boy, I'll tell you. Um, in preparing for this this class, I thought I understood uh, this parable. Uh, I didn't. Uh, I have been so blown away by this parable uh, in ways that I didn't expect. Uh, it's left me kind of emotional at points. Um, when I, you begin to catch a vision of what it is that the Savior was trying to teach here. And it's a different story probably than the one you've known. Uh, and it's more powerful and it's deeper. It is far more merciful. Um, it really is a remarkable, remarkable story. Especially if we catch it in its context. Um, so I, I've been really anxious to be able to uh, to get a chance to talk about this. So uh, let's go ahead and <coughs> let's remind ourselves where we are. Uh, remember that there is this that 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 Luke 15, the entire entire Luke 15 are these three parables, and we have to remember where they're being taught because it makes all the difference about how we see this. Uh, we are at the house of Jesus in Capernaum. Uh, he is he has invited a group of publicans and sinners to come. Uh, eat at his house. Now I suspect Paul talks about the uh, the idea first of kind of a table fellowship that the saints would meet for table fellowship and that is they had meals in common. They were the 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 saints in Ephesus and and uh, Caesarea and uh, Galatia and all that as they would join the way they would join the church they would have community meals together uh, and have table fellowship and that's where remember that was the problem a bit with uh, those that were still steeped in Judaism not wanting to be made unclean by eating with non you know with Gentiles kind of thing and so trying to breaking down those barriers so this might be one of the precursors to uh, having meals in common. So the Savior has invited sinners and publicans to his house for a meal. Uh, in my own mind, just my own imagination, because Nazareth had become such a kind of a dangerous place, I think his mother's there. I think his mother may be helping prepare and serve and all that, and certainly the disciples are there as well. So at this at the house of Jesus in Capernaum, uh, we have three groups. One is going to be the disciples uh, and those that are followers. The believers are going to be at this meal. Whether they're serving or just eating, don't know. But, but they're certainly there. Um, the sinners and publicans are sitting literally at his table. Um, and, the, and they're eating. Now, how they came to... Uh, come there we don't quite know although it is interesting that later on the Savior is going to give this parable about the wedding feast and the, and the high and mighty won't show up to the wedding feast so what does he do well he sends people out to go, go the highways and byways and go find them and invite them to the feast and so I, in, the, in the context of this I think they were invited I think they sent the disciples out to invite them to this feast that would be my own supposition because it fits in the spirit of what he's about to do. Okay? 
So they are sitting at the table. Who else is there? The Pharisees. Okay. Now, it's important that you picture this. They are watching and criticizing. Uh, So you have disciples uh, and sinners and publicans, and they are inside eating. You have... Publican, you have the uh, Pharisees and leaders, some of which are the uh, uh, the Herodim, and they're they're not going to be. Where, where are they going to be standing? Are they going to be in the building? No, you don't go in where sinners and publicans are. That would make you ritually unclean. So where are they? Standing at the door. They're standing at the doorway. Start picturing this, okay? They are standing either in the street or near the doorway so that they can speak to the Savior about what's going on in the place. So they're in a place where they can see it, but they're not going to be inside. So they're going to be outside. Now, where is Jesus standing? In the doorway. Remember what we were talking about last week? Who is Jesus? He's the good shepherd and he says, I am the door. So in a sense, you you just got a recreation of what is really his house at that moment. It's the sheepfold. Where is the Savior standing? In the doorway. I am the door. Who's standing outside in the street? The wolves. The wolves. Yes. <laughs> yes. Kind of. If you start to picture this, and they are, and they are kind of attacking, and literally, 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 he is. He has just created the twenty-third psalm. Thou preparest a table before me, where in the presence of mine enemies. It has literally come true, and that's staggering. That he created. Now, against that backdrop, so you've got those in the in the street complaining and criticizing. Um, you've got the Savior standing at the door of the fold, and then you've got the sheep safely inside the Caribbean. Uh, you prepared a table for me. My cup runneth over. They're they're feeding him and everything. And then in this setting, and they say, "Hey, why are you eating with publicans and sinners?" And he says. Let me tell you a parable. Let me tell you a story. And it's actually three stories, right? Because we're going to get the lost sheep. We're going to get the lost coin. And ultimately now we get lost boys. Okay? Now, if you get that setting, then... Yeah, and he loves them. And they feel loved. They feel invited. They feel cared for. Okay? Now, so a couple of other things then. As, as we're going to look at this, um, 
The historical setting changes many aspects of the traditional Western view of this story. Uh, I've gone, I'm, I'm going to draw real heavily today on uh, Kenneth Bailey's writings, uh, who, who served as a minister for 30 years in small little towns all over the Near East. Uh, and then he, would, he taught this a lot, so he would ask shepherds and he would ask people and he would ask people in small villages their reactions to elements of this story. So that's, he's got 1800 years of also going back to commentators and all that. What they said, but if you're Syrian and you're reading this story, if you're Coptic and you're reading this story, if you're Lebanese and you're reading this story, uh, how they saw this and there are elements here that, that changed uh, this dramatically. Um, so we, I want to look at it through those eyes, so I'm going to draw heavily on uh, Reverend Bailey. Now, remember that this parable, though, is part of the larger parable of the lost sheep in the 23rd Psalm. So let's not, let's not lose sight of, of that as well. Okay? All right. So, let's start. The beginning. And, um, and he said, a man has two sons. We, we tend to call this uh, the, the uh, prodigal son. But the parable is about two sons. A man had two sons. The younger said to his father, Give me the share of the property that falls to me. And he divided his assets between them. Now, Western translators have tended to, to translate this as, give me my share of the inheritance. But the, but the word actually denotes, and the commentators of all have said, this is an inheritance, this is property. Why wouldn't he use the word inheritance? that doesn't come till after the father's dead. Number one, yeah, you get your... In other words, I, father's not dying fast enough. Uh, I, I want the inheritance that should come at his death. Okay? Now, let me ask you this. If you are one of uh, Bill Gates' sons, <laughs> and he dies, and you receive uh, Microsoft by inheritance, what does that imply? First of all, that you're rich. <laughs> Second of all, oh, you have a lot of responsibility. You got a lot of responsibility, right? right. Your responsibility is to do what? Take, Take care of the company and yeah, make sure that things are fine. Who you're supposed now? If you're the older son, they have two sons, so so this is a two-third, one-third. The the older son is going to get two-thirds. Why? He's the firstborn, so he gets the double portion, which means he gets the double inheritance. Why? Take care of the mother and the sisters, the, the servants, the employees. Your job is to keep the family business rolling. With inheritance comes responsibility for the ongoing maintenance of what has maybe taken generations to build to get your land. Our, our family has been on this land for generations and now it's my responsibility to increase it and grow it and build it. I have a responsibility if I take an inheritance. 
What is he saying if I'm going to, I don't want the inheritance, I just want my property? Don't want the I don't want the responsibility. I want the, I want the money, but I don't want the responsibility. In, in essence, I'm kind of divorcing my family, right? Uh, and, and you're going to find that that becomes kind of a big deal. Um, then in other words, give me my money and I'm going to walk away. We'll kind of come back to that in just a second. Now at that point, the father is going to divide the assets to both sons. He's not just giving it to the younger son, he's also rolling it over to the older son. At that moment, he's, he's making a split. It is if he died. And he's splitting, he's splitting up. the. So that means that each, the older son is actually free to do with his assets what he would like to do. And the younger son is actually free to do what he wants to do. Because they now kind of own it. Even though the father's still alive, he can control some of this. He can, but he has actually rolled, he's actually rolled it over. Make, does it make sense? Yeah. Okay, now. He divided his assets between them. So, the, so one, one player is the, the prodigal son. The other player is the oldest son. Now, if... Let me back up. If, if, if you have this family farm that has been going for generations... And, and the younger son is going to come to the father and say, I don't want the inheritance, I just want the money. Is the father just going to go, okay, fine. We'll just enact this really quickly. What kind of dispute might that set up between father and son? Are you out of your mind? Uh, in fact, tradition holds that no father in the Near East would even do this, as we'll talk about in a second. It has created, it, it would create, in this case, uh, a, a major dispute. And, and tradition, in talking to the people in these small villages, they would say it would require the oldest son to act as a mediator between father and son. Okay. Now, why is this? If you if you're looking at Middle Eastern culture, this is a this is a uh, culture built on kind of pride and honor. Uh, if uh, if if uh, I'm going to have an argument with somebody, uh, let's say that our Jean and I were going to have some kind of dispute about something. If we're going to have a dispute, one of us would win and one of us would lose. So one of us gains face that the other one is going to walk away a loser. So they, they solve that. It's like, you go into one room over here, you, I will go into another room over there. A mediator will come in and talk to me and work out the deals and go in and talk to you and work out the deals. And once we've received, we've, we've come to a solution, we now have an agreement between us, now we can come out, shake hands and smile and everything. Everybody wins. There are no losers as long as the mediator can mediate the dispute. Does that make sense? Okay. So if we have a if we have a father that has taken generations to get this land, and we have a youngest son that wants to just take a third of the property, sell it, and leave. 
it would fall the people in these villages by tradition says it falls to the oldest son to be the mediator between father and son so in a sense the youngest son has abdicated his responsibility of the inheritance but what's the oldest son probably done here He's also, we don't have any record, the Savior isn't putting anything in here about the, the abdication of the older son who is also doing the same thing. It would have been his responsibility to not let this happen. In fact, it would be to the oldest son benefit to not have the property sold because he just lost a third of the estate. He's got a much smaller farm as a result of his younger brother's actions. So it would be in his self-interest to try and dispute, to handle the whatever it was that caused the son to want to leave. Now, there is a belief, one other possibility is, and that is that the oldest son is the reason why the younger son is leaving. There's, certain amount, there's a certain amount of animosity at the end from the oldest son. And it might be that the oldest son was just insufferable. And the younger son is like, when dad dies, I don't want to live, live under your thumb the rest of my life. I'm gone. That, that would also be a real possibility here. Okay? All right. So that's the oldest son. Now, the other player in this, in this mix is the father. The request he's being asked is costly, losing a third of the family land. The request is a humiliating breach of tradition in the eyes of the village. Remember, these guys aren't going to be living like out in the middle of nowhere. They're in a close-knit village. That's how safety occurs in this time. So you're going to live in the village. Everything you do is seen by every other member of the village. In America and other places, we want to have these big, this is a big successful farm. It's going to be 20 miles out there. I got a Texas ranch. You know, it could be 50 miles out in the middle of nowhere. Now, nah, this, is, this is a small Middle Eastern village and they are close by in town and everybody knows the doings of everybody else. And they're all related. And they're all related, yeah. It, they are all related. They all know. So, so in essence, anything that this son is going to do is not just a breach against dad. It's a breach against uncles and everybody else. It is a, it is a slam against everybody in this village. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the fact that uh, the father is going to grant the request is a, humili is a humiliation to the father. The other one is, and, you, and we need to be really aware of this, watch the father's behavior during the course of this thing. This request is heartbreaking. Not only is the son going to go out and, and lose a third of the family's assets, he's also going to break his father's heart. I wondered about that. She says, what did mama have to say? And I, and I think in the back it is almost, um, it's assumed that there's a mother right there that's just watching her son walk out. So, so you, you get these the the breaking of the parents' hearts by the son's actions. Yeah, this is like the pre-existence. 
is, do you know, I thought about that. She says it's a little bit like the pre-existence. Um, and, and there's some aspects of this that are really true. And then you kind of watch the behavior of the older son and say, it isn't quite true, but you kind of see some of the same dynamic. Yeah. The dynamics don't line up so far as which son is which and so forth, uh, but but the reactions of Lehi and Sariah to yeah. to Laman and Lemuel. Also, right, right. Hold on to the idea of Lehi. I may come back to that. I was teasing something earlier with some of the people that came in earlier. I may talk about that. Yeah. Well, it makes me wonder why the father did that. Why did yes. Oh, good question. Why would the father do this? And not only that, why would the Savior who is telling the parable have the Father doing? I mean, this Father is a creation of the Savior's mind. <laughs> it's, it's, he's telling a story. And what he's doing is, in, in the Savior in telling the story this way, is showing a Father doing a tremendous breach of tradition. And in fact, the words coming to Kenneth Bailey when he tried to teach this in small villages is they keep saying, no father would do this. We would, we would say no. Which makes the end of the story all more poignant. Dramatic. Yeah. Hang on to that. That's why I say it. So, so one of the things that the Savior is subtly doing here is, is challenging tradition in a way that would have caught the, their attention. The Pharisees would have been out there thinking, no, fathers don't do this. Well, this father did. But, and watch what, watch what he does. So, so we, have, we have tradition being broken all over the place here. Through much of the Savior's, um, I've, thought, I've thought about, we may see how we, we go here, but I'm thinking about doing a class on Jesus the rebel. <laughs> how much of a rebel he was and a rabble rouser for breaking tradition at every turn. And he, and he loved to do that. Okay, Keep the commandments, but break the, the false traditions. Okay, So we got, we've got the players now. All right. Now, let me take it one step farther. If the son is going to go ahead and actually do this, he doesn't want the inheritance, he wants the property. That means he's going to, uh, he's got to turn around and sell it quickly. And it's going to say in a second that he, it, was, it was sold um, in a few days, he settled his affairs and left. Now, if you're in the village and somebody's willing to sell this little part of the village and, they, and they're ready to go right now, what kind of price are you going to get for that? Yeah, you're going you're to get pennies on the denarii <laughs> kind of thing, you know. It's, it's going to sell fast because he's offering a cut rate price because he just wants to take the property and leave. Also, it's a tremendous embarrassment. You're not going to sit around for months working on and negotiating a fee for this because you're either leaving in anger or you're leaving in embarrassment. Either way, you're getting out of town about as fast as you can. Is it possible that his brother bought it? It's an interesting thought. The, the problem, the, the reason I don't think the brother bought it is that back then it isn't like the, 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 the wealth was in the land. So he would have had to liquidate part of his, to, I mean, the wealth is in the land. There's no money in the bank. That's their wealth. That's why they're having to sell the property. You can't just say, well, let me dip into my savings 
my capital expense budget and I'll pay you off. You know. Um, so he's going to do it quickly. Now, this tremendous breach would say that if somebody's going to then sell the family property, uh, and by the way, it was property was so important back then that remember what happens in a in a jubilee year. Uh, all debts are free and the land is supposed to revert back to I mean this is a the, the, the greatest blessing of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob the first blessing that Abraham was given was what? land it's about property because property establishes who you are and where you live and it's your identity that is who you are you're from this place I don't think it's an accident that we talk about we're from what tribe? Well, Ephraim. So, but it's Ephraim. It, we're from the tribe of Ephraim where? In the house of Israel. Where are you from? The house of Israel. There's a place that is, that is my stake in the ground. This is where I live. This is where I'm from. And, and even though Jesus spent most of his adult life probably living out of Capernaum and, and running around, he was always referred to as who? Jesus of Nazareth. That's where you're from. Who are you? I am. Th that establishes your identity. So if you're going to up and sell your property, you have just sold your inheritance. You've just sold your birthright for a mess of pottage. This isn't just, I'm going to take my money and go away. This is, I'm divorcing dad, I'm divorcing the family, I'm divorcing my clan, I'm divorcing my village. And I'm leaving everything. I am walking away. And be and kind of being a but I'm free. Now I am free. I have my brother's property. And now I am free. This is called the Mayhan principle. <laughs> Master Mayhan is what Cain says. I am now free because I have this. Yeah. But it it prompts the question for me about free to what? I'm free to spend. Oh. I'm free to be out from underneath my brother. I'm free to do whatever I want to do. Free I'm free from responsibility. I got money and I got and I'm free from responsibility. But am I incorrect in saying that laying down a new state isn't the simplest thing in the world? Oh no. But you know what? If you got money, hey, you know, Gentiles don't care so much about land. I'm gonna go hang out with them. It's about who's got the money. So it looks really, really good. If I leave this church, I get a 10% raise and Sunday's off. <laughs> it is awesome. I, and I can drink as much coffee as I want to drink and I don't have, you know, I am free to have wine with my, with my uh, people at work. I am free. I don't have to do ministering visits <laughs> it's it's freedom baby I'm out of here I can wear whatever clothes I want to wear I can do whatever I want to do it, it's tattoos I can get tattoos all I want yeah yeah okay so now how's the village though going to respond to somebody who says I divorce you I divorce you I divorce you 
they're not going to think well. Not well. Not well. In fact, there is a... It's more public than that. This is called the Kazaza ceremony. And what they do is they... they, Because you're going to waste the family's honor and resources among unbeliever, you're taking Abrahamic um, inheritance, land and property, and you're going to give it to pagans and unbelievers. Well, in the same way that they will stone somebody, there is a public separation between the village and the person. And it's called the kazaza. And what they do is they they take a big pot and they shatter it. You are part of the pot. You are part of the vessel. You have shattered this thing and broken it. And there's a very public, with everybody watching, we're going to break the pot. Um, In a sense, we've seen sometimes in Jewish tradition where they will tear their robe, tear their clothes, to say, I'm divorced, You've, you're no longer my son, you're no longer... Okay, think about Fiddler, Fiddler on the Roof and some others where there, you get that moment of the sundering of the covenant, the sundering of the people. We are no longer your people because you have turned your back on us. Okay, that's... Pretty massive. And from that point on, where before, if you're a member of the village, your enemies are our enemies. And if there's anything that you need, we're there for you. At that moment, you are on your own. You don't have any connection to us any more than a vagabond and a beggar and a Gentile. Yeah, this ceremony was a message to their children, too. Yes. uh, Leave them alone. Yeah, don't do this or you're going to get sundered, too. So, so, so we've kind of marked, and everybody knows very publicly who now the outcast is, and we're going we're gonna to separate that out. This is what the younger son was now facing, and in all likelihood the Savior would be referring to that this is what would happen. Because tradition would say, we know what we would do at that point. Now, to, an, uh, to a lesser extent, the Pharisees would do that, right? Think about, we were talking earlier about the woman caught in adultery and brought to the temple. She's being dragged into the temple thing. She has kind of stepped outside the bounds of things. And as as a prostitute, she might have offered herself to Gentiles, whoever, okay? And, And they're saying the law requires the the ultimate kazaza, and that would be stoning, killing, casting them out. You've broken the laws. You should be separated from us so that we can remain pure because we don't associate with you. And instead, the Savior offers what the Father is about to offer. So I will come back to that. Okay? All right. So this is the cutting off of family, tribe, and village. The cutting off of identity. And now, but you are free. You're free from all those family connections and responsibilities and everything, which just sounds like such a great deal, right? All right. So, I find it interesting that the cost for the son is much higher than he yet knows. It sounded like a good idea right in the middle of an argument with dad or right in the middle of an argument with his brother to say, well, I'm just going to take my ball and go home. I want to take what's mine and leave, and I don't have to be associated with you guys anymore. And he does not yet realize the cost involved to him.
Now, this ought to be touching kind of a part of your hearts if you've had kids that have struggled or if you've known people that have struggled and you watch them making rash decisions and you want to somehow capture that and can't because they won't let you in. All they can see is freedom and the ability to come and go and to be out from underneath whatever expectations are there. So this ought to hit us at kind of a, a soft spot, I think. Okay. So, with all due respect to Rembrandt, <clears throat> I don't think that's how it looked. But... <laughs> Not many days later, so the, the son is able to liquidate his property, his part of the property quickly. Uh, there's no, there's no uh, way to reconcile. Uh, he sells the property at a reduced cost. And he gathered all that he had and took his journey into a far country. The far country would be the, would be the Gentiles would be the pagans. Remember, if you're still among Israel, you're still, you haven't left a far country. You're still part of family. You're in the house of Israel. He's left the house. He's now gone to a far country. And while he's out in that far country then, and there he squandered his property in loose living. So now he's able to spend as much as he wants to spend, do whatever he wants to do. And he's taking the accumulated... Uh, wealth of generations of family and just spending them on, on loose living. So it's kind of egregious at the highest level. Okay, But he's having a good time. Uh, the other thing that I found too, um, anybody know the average uh, time that if somebody receives an inheritance, how long does it take for kids who receive an inheritance to spend that inheritance? <laughs> Anybody know how long it takes for somebody who wins the lottery to spend to spend the lottery earnings? <laughs> the average the average time because at one point I was trying I was working kind of in finances with, with seniors and stuff like that the, the the statistics say that the average inheritance is gone in 18 months doesn't matter the size there's a reason that family-owned businesses don't make it to this past the second generation you know, you got a father that spends forever building up a great company. He hands it off to Squirrely Nephew, <laughs> who runs it into the ground and sells it. The people that have not earned the money don't always know how to spend the money. And those that built the business don't know how to manage. So if you're just going to drop cash on them, the, the worst thing you can do if you've, if you've accumulated a lot of money in your life is to hand, hand that money over to your kids with no restrictions or guidelines or anything. Okay? Because unless they have learned over time to be, to be careful in their own dealings, 18 months is often how fast that goes. You have a sense with this whole story that it may not have been 18 months. <laughs> it 
went quick because he's now free and he can spend it freely. Okay? So life is, is pretty good there. And then, when he had spent everything, now comes the problem. After he spent everything, what's the big problem? Famine. A famine. Now, in the West, we look at that and say, what's the big problem? The, in, in the West, we look at it and say, the big problem is the fact that he spent the money. In the Middle East, in those conditions that they live under, they would say the biggest problem was what? The drought. They live in a drought area where they would say the drought is devastating. You can kind of survive in a number of ways, but if you have a drought, it gets incredibly serious and uh, <coughs> and he's going to have to spend at a faster pace because he doesn't have property, doesn't have land. He's just having to shell out. Think about when you're on vacation and you don't have a house, but you're in a hotel. So now you're having to eat out all the time. The money goes quick. Okay. The problem wasn't the money. The, the thing that accelerated the loss of the money was the drought. Now, if somebody is going to take their journey away from family and friends or the church, when does it cease being fun? <laughs> At what point? When what? When the money's gone. When the money's gone and? And your loan and? You're hungry. And why are you hungry? Because there's a drought. The problem is the drought. This kind of reminds me of an Amos where it talks about a drought on the land. A spiritual drought. Yeah. But you would experience that too. Whether there was a literal drought or not, there could be a spiritual lack. Mm -hmm. It's very unsatisfying. Sure. If you've got money and freedom, everything is good until a drought comes into your life. Hardship, adversity, a struggle. For instance, we sometimes have talked about this. What if, what if we lived in a, in a time right now where you had lots of money but we were living in drought-like condition and people are unwilling to sell their bread at any cost? Even if you've got money, great, go ahead and eat your coins. Because <laughs> I'm not selling my bread. I'm, I'm not. In the Mountain Meadows Massacre, that was part of the problem was that the, uh, as the Francher Party was coming down through southern Utah and they got down to Cedar City, one of the disputes between them was that they felt like on their way down to California, wagon trains have always been able to come down, uh, feed on the high mountain pasture, but go into Panguitch and go into Cedar City and get provisions. The problem was is that they weren't, the people in Cedar City weren't selling them provisions. They, you can have all the money you want. We're not selling. That was where some of the dispute came from. The problem comes with the drought. For somebody who has freedom, they can still have money, but if nobody will sell, you're going to starve. And, and those that are struggling with adversity and hard times in their life and don't understand what's coming after this life, don't understand the plan of salvation, and along comes the, the drought of adversity in your life, 
you're going to starve at the feast. And that's what he was running into. In the Book of Mormon that says that, this, that, that Satan doesn't support his own. So it comes when there's a drought. The inheritance, of the, the, the property is fun in good times, but there's a problem when there's bad times. And that's where we are. That's what has, has occurred to the son. Okay? Now watch what he does here. Now, if you're going to do this, and you're now away from your tribe and your family, what do you do? <laughs> it's sort of like eating crow, only that would taste better. Yes. <laughs> That's funny. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens in that country who sent him into his fields to feed swine. I love that term, joined. It's almost the same word that is used uh, in the Bible to talk about, and Adam knew his wife. It's like there's this closeness. Uh, I, remember, I remember once we were in a port, I think we were in Honduras, and sometimes when we're out traveling like that, we like to pick up antibiotics uh, in, in Mexico or Honduras or wherever we are. So, so we stepped out of the port and we asked, we asked a guy that was there. He says, can I, can I help you? I said, pharmacia. Let me find the pharmacia. Ah, pharmacia. Come, 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 come. And it was up like two blocks up the road. And it was like this guy had literally just... Leached onto us. We're we're going nowhere without this guy. I promise. As we're walking uh, up the sidewalk, he's like right next to us, and he's talking to us. He's smiling. He has no English, but he knows pharmacia. I get you there. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. And and, and we're there, and we finally here's our pharmacia, and and we go into the pharmacy to pick up our Zithromax that you can get cheap. Okay. But he's still standing in the doorway. You know, if, if he was, if he was, a, if he was a, a doggy, he would be waving his tail. <laughs> he's just, he's just, he's not going anywhere. You know, we could have stayed in that pharmacy for three hours and he would still be standing there. Okay? Uh, and so then we're going to walk out. We've got like the three blocks down to the port to walk in. And he's right there with us, man. He is our, he is our buddy and our friend forever. You know, until we finally give him some money, now he's happy and he can now go away uh, because he helped us find the, the pharmacy. Well, if you're, if you're desperate, you're going to join yourself to somebody of means, right? So it says that he joined himself to one of the citizens of the, not just anybody, a citizen would be, in this day, a citizen of Rome. That's the big citizen or at least somebody of wealth and means. And so the only way that this son can survive is to join himself with somebody. Okay? At that point, he has now gone from being a son to a servant. He sounds like a bookie to me. Yeah. A little bit like a bookie? Or a you know, mafia boss. Yeah. I'm going to find somebody. Tell me what you want me to do. I'll do it. Like he thought he was his friend. Oh, yeah. In, like, gambling or playing or having fun. But he was really just wanting the money. Yep. And then when the money runs out... You're just a servant. I'm just a servant. And he sent him into his fields to feed who? Swans. Wow. 
So not only that, now he's going to have him do things that, it, it might be like a, a mafia kind of thing. He's actually having him go against all his traditions. He's going to go in there to feed swine. That would make him, if he wasn't unclean already, now he's going to be especially clean while he's out feeding the swine. So you get a, you get a sense of how far the fall is by this son. Yeah. Well, I was just thinking that also, I mean, in, in certain cultures, you know, in, in England, uh, places like that, that when people literally ran out of money and the ability to take care of themselves, they, they sold themselves as an individual. And in that way, they, they sold themselves. Yeah. I don't have anything else, but you can buy me. And I, and I will do whatever. Okay, I will work for you. I just, I just need a little bread. Give me something to eat. Because I'm starving. Okay? So th- this is where the sun is. This is the moment. Okay? And he would gladly have fed on the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. So he's looking at it. He couldn't quite stomach eating that, but still, no one's given him anything. So he's not even getting that. So he's sitting, he's sitting in, in, this, in the pig yard and, and he's kind of, he's desperate. He's kind of at the end of his rope here. Okay. So, what happens here? He concocts a plan. And this is going to run a little counter to the story that I've always told and probably you've told and I and the story that we let me just preface this by saying the story we tell about this still works at the level that we use it but I need you to see it through Middle Eastern eyes and find that it's even and uh, it's a much more interesting story I think okay here's how traditionally we tell this story he then comes to himself okay which denotes what He's hit rock bottom, repentance, right? He comes to himself. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your skilled craftsmen is the actual translation of this. Okay? Now, so there's the, there's the story as we tell it, that, that, this, that this son, at that moment, his heart begins to change, and he finally comes to himself. He wakes up from the thing that he's been living under, and the delusion, and he recognizes the error of his ways, because he comes to himself. Okay? Now, again, if we want to use that story and that, I think it works, and I think we could continue to use that in sacrament meeting talks, they would. Do, but if we were, if we had a uh, Palestinian ward that we were talking to, they would dispute that. Here's how they would frame it: In 1800 years, Arabic and Syriac, Syriac versions have never used that language in this text that implies repentance. They don't see this as repentance. In fact, there's a number of versions of this where they say, 
Instead of he came to himself, it says he got smart and concocted a plan. He started to put a plan together that might get him out of this desperateness. In fact, one of the ways that we get this, uh, go to Exodus. As pressure mounted on Pharaoh to deal with Moses, he finally relented and summoned Moses and confessed, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. The Savior is putting Pharaoh's words in the son's mouth. Does that make sense? Does anybody believe that Pharaoh was sincere saying, I have sinned against you? No. 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 In fact, everyone knows that Pharaoh was not sincerely repenting. Rather, he was trying to manipulate Moses into serving Pharaoh's interests. So as he's sitting in the mud with the pigs, what is he doing? When it says he came to himself. He's devising a plan to do what? I will go back home and I will treat me as one of your skilled craftsmen. Teach me a trade. Let me, let me earn money. And potentially, if I've earned money, now what can I do? I can get out from underneath the debt. I can maybe, if I want to, if I've got past the, the, the village and the embarrassment and the humiliation to my family, I may be able to buy myself back into good graces. Listen closely. My salvation will come by my own efforts. My salvation will come because I have purchased grace from my dad by my efforts. That's, that's the essence of this. I will put a plan together that saves me. Maybe he'll get enough money where he can go back and live in the far country. Maybe, because he wasn't really sincerely trying to heal dad's broken heart in his reconciliation. He's just trying to clean up his reputation. But I can, I can be saved by my own efforts. And this flies in the face of grace. I can save myself. Here's the plan. I'm not really sincere in, trying, in saying I will use false words. Uh, I've sinned against you and against uh, heaven. But in, in essence, those in the Middle East would say he's not really being sincere. He doesn't really believe that. D does that make sense? That's different than the way that we traditionally look at this. But in essence, it has greater salience, as we'll see in just a second. The sad thing is he doesn't realize how much his father really loved him. Yes. Yeah, exactly. In other words, that, that bitterness of heart and whatever was causing the dispute caused him to not really understand the father's love. If we're holding a grudge or we're angry or we're bitter, we don't understand love. And we don't understand the power of that love. And, and we don't understand the Father and what motivates Him. Okay? Uh, Kenneth Bailey has said it this way, and I just thought this was profound. He said, Reconciliation is not part of His immediate plan. He wants to eat and says so. He is working as a servant in a far country and is starving. He might as well get some job training, establish himself in a new trade, earn a decent salary, and be able to eat. Because he has not yet faced his own sin, he cannot possibly understand what reconciliation means or what it costs. 
We, uh, I, I've, I've said before, I believe that when we look at the Savior's threefold mission in coming to earth, it was uh, to, to uh, heal broken hearts to, uh, and to, to heal relationships. His job is to heal broken relationships. That's what he does. And then also to heal wounds and illnesses and sicknesses. It's to reconcile, to reconcile, to reconcile. That's why when he's talking about in the, in the uh, Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about blessed are those that seek, that the hunger and thirst after relationships, for they shall be filled. It's about reconciliation. We are lost and separated from God. Okay, so he doesn't yet understand what it means. In the deepest sense, and I just think this is awesome. In the deepest sense, the prodigal is not going home. He's going back to servanthood. He's not coming back as a son. He's going to come back as a servant. As long as his former attitudes remain, he is still in a far country, spiritually, even as he physically approaches his home village. In short, at the edge of the village... He is still lost. Wow. Let that settle for just a second. At the edge of the village, as he's approaching it, and everything that he's got coming up, he's still lost because he hasn't really understood yet. He's about to. This is the moment when he finally does. The word reconciliation, we interpret it to mean atonement today. And that's this atonement that's at one moment. At the at one moment, yeah. Between the father and the son. Yeah. But watch how this is affected. Watch how this happens. Okay. But when he arose, he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him, had compassion on him, and ran. He raced and embraced and kissed him. Now, um, from the practical standpoint, if there was indeed a kazaza uh, ceremony, and it would be implied by tradition that that would have been understood by the Pharisees that that's what would happen to somebody who did these kind of things. Okay? What is the son's danger in approaching the village? Rejection? Shamed? They don't owe him anything. No, and in fact, he may meet almost a violent pushback. There's a famine and one more hungry mouth. They don't want it. Yeah, the, the famine's hitting these guys as well, but they can pull together as a village. They don't need another hungry mouth. But more than that, here is the man that has dishonored his father. We all know that he dishonored his father. He sold the land. We all saw it happen. We heard every little bit of this. It's been discussed over and over in all of our discussions. We all know who he is. And there would have been almost a violent reaction against somebody who would have dishonored this honorable man in the village the way that he did. He's in danger. Well, he'd rejected them, too. Yes, he'd turned his back on them as well. Absolutely. Why would we want to have this back in? And so you actually get uh, 
little uh, roving boys and stuff like that that might throw rocks and the way that they would reject a vagabond. You're no longer part of us, but you, you besmirched our honor. We don't even want you here. So there's a very real danger here. Now, so, but for an older man, an older, wiser member of the village to then say, there's my son down here and he is, and he's faced with this. He doesn't just walk. What does he do? He raced. The, the term is raced. It's the same word that Paul is using in running, running a good race and receiving a crown. It's like the Olympics. It's not like he's, he's not trotting. He's not like shuffling quickly. Okay, what does it mean to have to race? Well, if you're wearing long robes, how are you gonna run? <laughs> you're gonna have to you're gonna have to gird up your loins, which is you're gonna have to reach behind to the back part of your robe, you're gonna have to pull it all the way up, tuck it into your belt, exposing your pasty white legs. <laughs> And probably take off your sandals and race through the village to get to your son. Do you see the level of humiliation and indignity for the father? There was no humiliation. He loved. But he didn't care. As silly as this looks, yeah, he didn't care. I don't care. I am so if you're if you're the son and you're approaching with trepidation the village and you're practicing your speech <laughs> and you're going to look up the road and see your father full out running towards you that's the moment it wasn't in the pigsty that's the moment he knew, but he only knew when the father came out. When the father came out to meet him. That's why the angel turns to Nephi and he says, Knowest thou the condescension of God? Do you realize how far he lowered himself to save you? I also love the fact that the father was watching him. And that to me is yeah. hard. Yeah. So for all of the brokenheartedness, he was watching for him and looking for him. Yeah. So so that he's got that big concern there. But then the moment comes and he and now he could have watched and waited for him and stood at the gate and waited for the sun to come. You kind of get that. I will go ahead and mention it just real quickly. You kind of get that idea in the tree of life kind of thing that 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 Lehi is standing at the tree of life in the in the tree of life vision, and people are coming, and he says, "I'm here," and they're kind of coming up. I think that's the way that they would have understood it in the Old Testament. We're going to follow the laws, and we make it up to the tree. What you're getting at this moment is the father's not waiting at the tree. Where, what's he doing? He condescends. He's coming down. He's going to come out and he's supplying love and grace to the shepherd. The shepherd doesn't say, well, we lost that one. I hope the sheep finds his way back. What does he do? He goes and gets him. And, and what's being taught here is go. 
come out, go out, race, go find them, go sweep the house for the lost coin, go find the lost sheep, come out and go get them. That's why I was, I was teasing Cindy earlier. I said, I think if the, if the tree of life thing had been later on, uh, it might have been that Lehi, the people get to the tree of life, they partake of the fruit, and then they go searching for the people who are wandering off in the midst. <laughs> you know, we're going to go out. We leave the security of where we are at great personal cost to go rescue and bring them home. Because it's not your plan that saves you. It is my love. That is salvation. Yeah. I seems like I would call a recent conference talk. I want to say it was either Elder Lukdorf or President Iring that if you do anything, try and come closer to God. He reaches out. He does. He reaches through the veil to take us and bring us home. That's what he does. Okay, and that is the essence here. The essence is the Father going out. The essence is the Father rescuing the lost. And doing whatever it takes at personal cost. Even if I look silly running through the village, I'm going to go get my son. I don't care. And that's why this is the moment the son finally realizes, I think it comes to him at that moment. All the silly plan I was concocting is stupid. Because the father is going to embrace him and kiss him. And, the, and then the son says, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Now he says it for real. He leaves off, I will be your servant, and all that kind of stuff. He just, now's the moment it comes to him. Where he goes, I don't deserve this kind of love. And guess what? None of us do. <laughs> the, the act of grace and, and, and a loving father is, none of us deserve his love. Our, our actions and our behavior don't warrant. All of our concocted plans to save ourselves is silly. It is his love that saves us, literally. It is his coming out. Okay? How do we know here? Well, the father said to his servants who were watching this whole thing, bring quickly the best robe. What robe would that be, by the way? Ceremonial. It's a ceremony, but whose robe? It's the dad's, dad's robe. Okay? The kid sold his stuff. It's dad's robe. Okay, uh, put a ring on his hand. That's the signet ring. That's when we talk about being sealed. It is an image of the family crest that you can seal contracts. That you can put that into wax and and be the notary public for that moment. That that's that ring is a symbol of I'm a son again. I'm not a servant. He thought he would be a servant. The Lord, the Lord doesn't need servants. He needs loving family members who love and will, and will take care of the needs because we're family and we love, not because we're servants. And hired servants run when the wolves come. That's, that's the message. Okay? Yeah? Oh, just the, the visual of the robe. You were, you've said earlier that the atonement is 
the robe. The, yes. The embrace. The embrace. Yeah. yeah. E exactly. Exactly. Bring the fatted calf. This is the one that is uh, uh, bred on, on gr grain, not on the, the wild weed, stuff like that, so it's the best. Let's eat and make merry, for this is my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. This is the conclusion. Remember, in the first two stories of the, this parable, the sheep and the lost coin, there's an invitation to make merry, but the merriment doesn't happen yet. It's left out of the story. Here it's suddenly introduced. To who? Who's Jesus talking to? The Pharisees. What are the Pharisees watching? The meal. They're watching the celebration. I've got the sinners and the publicans in my house. I'm feeding them. Come in. Come join us. Come be merry. Now, here's where the slam comes. Because he's not done. Here's the response. The elder son was in the field. He comes near, drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. Shocked I am to find sinners and publicans in his house. I'm hearing music. What is going on? They're showing up. Yeah, how come you didn't invite us? You didn't do the fat, you didn't provide a meal for us. And he, and he asked one of the young boys that are running around. He said to them, and they said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received them with shalom. He's received them with peace. He loves them. He's thrilled that they're there. And he was angry and refused to go in. So what happens? The father goes out again to rescue his other son. He's got to get up from the feast. Everybody, well, where are you, where's your older son? I don't know. I haven't seen him. Um, Master, yeah, your, your son's out there. He won't come in. Why, he's mad. Excuse me. He's going to get up and he's going to walk out. This is going to be a very public thing. Again, the father is being dishonored, but he does, he's going to break tradition. The father goes out to the son. And entreated him. And he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you. Let me say it again. God does not want servants. <laughs> God wants loving family members who love like he loves to, serve, to take care of the needs of his flock. He doesn't want servants because the fear is always that they run in the face of the, flock, of the, the wolves. And if you're a servant, you feel like it's owed to you. It is owed to you. Right. Yes. Right. So he's wanting to bring you in, put the robe on you, put the ring on you, and make you family, and then you will love the way I love, and you will take care of business, but you'll do it from a love standpoint, not from a 
Uh, not from a, man, am I glad to get out from underneath this calling. This thing's been driving me nuts for the longest time. And can, can, I get, can I have some ministering people that are really a little nicer and easier to get to? Hey. Finally got finally got out from underneath that. Well, I don't I have start, he didn't understand. He thought he was a servant and the father wanted a son. You never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. You kind of get this jealousy thing. But when this son of yours came, remember Remember, the Pharisees started this whole thing with what? This. This. <laughs> you see how good the Savior is on this? It's just so masterful. This eats with publicans. They go, well, this son <laughs> of yours came who devoured his living with harlots. He doesn't know that. He's just supposing you killed for him the fatted calf. You have he has dishonored himself. He's ritually unclean, and you are you are serving him a meal anyway. So the prodigal son, the older son, and picture the Pharisees here. He's still refusing to reconcile with his father. He wants an apology. Sorry I didn't ever have this meal with you before. I didn't realize just how great you were and how greatly you served me. He's keeping the law, but breaking his father's heart. Let me say that again. He, they, are keeping the law, but they're breaking his father's heart by refusing to reconcile. He's trying to define himself as a servant when his father is wanting a partnership with family who loves who he lo loves as he loves. And for this reason, they misunderstand the meaning of the banquet. The banquet is the celebration. Now, it is true story that if if the people are coming to the banquet, in a sense, are they celebrating the son being an idiot? What? Who's being celebrated here at the banquet? The father is. And what's being celebrated? His, his joy, his love, his incredible mercy. We're grateful to come to a banquet and see a demonstration of how merciful this father is. Who's willing to break tradition and convention to love and serve and reach out and bring these people home. That's what, that's what the sacrament is. It's a, it's a celebration of gratitude for mercy. Stunning when you, when you see the levels on this. Okay, Now, he's going to say to him, Son, Tachom means, uh, it's like, uh, uh, it's not just son, it's like dear son, my loving son. It's very, very affectionate. Okay, it's the same word that is used when uh, when uh, Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple at twelve, and they've been looking for him everywhere. I finally found you. Yeah, you are always with me, and all that I have, all that is mine, is yours. 
It was fitting to make merry and be glad, for this your brother was found and is alive. He was lost and is found. Okay? And I, and I line this right up with the workers in the vineyard from Matthew 20, where the final line there is, Is it not lawful for me to do what I want with my belongings? Is your eye evil because I am good? Thus the last will be first and the first will be last. It's that, it's that same sentiment. Okay, now the, 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 the kind of the crushing end of this would be if we, were, if we were seeing the Pharisees as the older son and the, and the sinners and publicans as the younger sons and the disciples and Savior as the father, okay, and we were making this an, a historical kind of thing. Do you know how this parable would actually end if we were making this history? This is how the story would end. If we simply take the parable as foreshadowing, with Jesus as the loving father, the oldest son, the Pharisees, remains angry and begins to plot the father's death. He, is eventually, he eventually makes up false charges against the father, turns him over to a powerful unbelieving officials to be sentenced and killed. The father finally dies a humiliating death all the time asking, for which of my kind acts am I being put to death? That set us up for Easter? Oh my goodness. It should. Because the the um, the the incredible amount of mercy that is being extended here by a loving father who's willing to go out and rescue those that don't deserve it, but does anyway. Who wants to turn them from servants into family. In this case, at this time of the year, is met with a humiliating death. With the oldest son never quite figuring it out. Now, I think when, when this is being done, it's kind of left to the um, Pharisees, in other words, to ask them, what will you do? Will you come in and sup with us? Or will you continue to attack? And their choice was to continue to attack and be actually begin to plot his death. Which is staggering. So, it, with that then as a... I don't want to add too much more to that, but that ought to be... As we roll into this Easter session, I, I, would, I would pray that we would begin to understand in some minor way the incredible power of what Jesus was teaching and the incredible power of his love and his mercy for us. That is, that is beyond all understanding that we might have. And I would leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.